This is the L2 Capital Podcast with Hedge Fund Manager Marcelo Lopez. The L2 Capital Podcast focuses on potential opportunities in the market and brings to your industry leaders and an intelligent conversation about their respective areas of expertise. And now, here's your host, Marcelo Lopez. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special edition of the L2 Capital Podcast. As everyone knows by now, President Trump has made a decision regarding Section 232, and it will have an impact on the market. Not only because of the decision itself, but also because the elephant is out of the room and the utilities can now go back to the market and contract again. So we finally are going to start seeing where the price of uranium really is. Now, to talk to me today, I have Brandon Munro, CEO of Bannerman Resources. His views are quite interesting for a couple of reasons. First, he talks to everyone in the sector. Secondly, Brandon is a lawyer, so he brings a different perspective to the table. So Brandon, I know you're on holidays with your family at the moment, but still you took some time off to talk to me. So many thanks for that. And, and again, welcome to this podcast. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, Marcelo. It's a real pleasure to be on the show again. And uh, no problem at all taking some time out. I'm taking time out traveling in Namibia with my family. And it's it's just such a pleasure being here and sharing with them what's become a very important part of my life, of course, with Bannerman and Andy Tango being here. And don't feel bad about it because today is, in fact, a working day. I made sure I allocated time around Section 232 to be ready to talk and process. <laughs> Thanks. Now, uh, let's start with an article you wrote at the end of June. And you mentioned that, and, and I quote, a more likely decision will be to sidestep tariff quota action, but to use the Section 232 powers to impose other non-protectionist measures that are designed to placate the utilities and or miners, end quote. Now, uh, there is some discussion as to who has broke the news of Section 232 resolution, but I think you were ahead, weren't you, Brandon? Uh, well, look, I must say I wasn't prepared to call a particular outcome. I thought it was way too uncertain. But the point that I think I did make in that article is that some of the single-minded enthusiasm from any uranium investors where they really were expecting quotas as a very likely outcome, I was cautioning against that. Uh, so, as you know, Marcelo, sometimes I make a pretty firm call and I've got a pretty firm call out there on uranium price by the end of the year but I wasn't brave enough this time around but I think when I go back and I read that article from 28 June uh, I feel pretty good about the advice that I was giving people the, the guidance that I was giving readers and investors. <laughs> sure. Um, we're going to talk about the price later, but uh, could you please tell us what you make of this decision? I think it's fantastic news, it, obviously for everyone except the petitioners and, and other US producers. It's fantastic news for two reasons. One is it's a clear decision. It's almost as clear as you could have. And whilst there has been a little bit of concern that the working group uh, will delay things, I don't think think it will and I'll come back to that. So the other reason why it's a fantastic decision is the order from President Trump to establish the nuclear fuel working group for me is now preloading the possibility of additional catalysts in the short term. So just to go back on the background, President Trump using his Section 232 powers 
said he will make no trade action. So the very extensive powers that he has, where he can impose quotas and all sorts of other things, bypassing the need for Congress to get involved, he said he won't use that. And in fact, one of the Newswire articles that came out was uh, pointing to the fact that he's finally a trade fight that Trump doesn't want to pick. And I think that alludes to the fact that those powers are very strong. So he said no action. There's no tariffs. There's no quotas. uh, There's none of the other protectionist measures that he could impose. And these are all the things that were worrying the utilities. These are all the reasons why the utilities were quite hesitant to come back to the market, even the spot market, because he would have had the power to say, for example, there's going to be a tariff and that tariff will apply whether the contracts are in place today or whether they put in place in the future. So the utilities didn't want to start contracting if there's a risk that they might be buying uranium from Namibia, for example, And then they find out that he's going to put a tariff on Namibian uranium. And whilst that's a fairly extreme example, the point is that we have an administration that's been quite prepared to use extreme measures to achieve their ends. So it's impossible to rule those sorts of things out. So back to the working group, I think that's tremendously positive as well, because now we've got a working group with all of the key players from Department of Defence, the Secretary of State, obviously Secretary of Commerce, Secretary of Energy and others who are able to have a proper holistic look at what the issues are that face both the US miners, but also the US nuclear utilities. And I don't think it's just a case of kicking the can down the road. I think it's something far more important and far more positive than that. If you look at the reaction of some of the utilities, they're very pleased with the result. There's no suggestion or hint that they're providing a guarded approval in light of the working group. So I think the working group is, if not their suggestion, It's certainly a solution that they are happy with and probably had some input into. So I think the working group is going to be helping the utilities rather than putting any further barriers in front of them. And given that the US still accounts for a quarter of global uranium demand, anything that's positive for the US nuclear fleet adds further positivity to the uranium sector in general. Okay, so in your opinion, what will be the outcome of this uh, nuclear fuel group? So I can suggest a few possible outcomes. And some of these go back to my article of 28 June, which were on the table as potential outcomes from directly from um, the Trump's decision on Section 232. So, for example, I'm very interested to see that Department, the Secretary of Defence uh, is involved, as well as the Secretary of the Treasury. So that then opens the door for the possibility that Department of Defence will say, OK, we can help the US miners by entering into a contract, uh, say five million pounds per annum for the next 10 years. And uh, we will distribute it perhaps amongst four or five different miners. So we ensure that as well as assisting the petitioners, we've now brought on stream another three to four miners. Now that's a great result because it's introducing new demand into the market. And it would also be a very positive uh, story for the utilities. Um, Now I think another important aspect of this is the Department of Energy uranium barter. So your listeners might be aware that the background to that, Department of Energy has been bartering uranium from its stockpiles for some time in order to pay for the cleanup of the Paducah 
um, basically um, weaponry enrichment site. Now, the reason they've had to do this is Congress got a bit tangled in a willingness to approve the cleanup of this site. So Congress, for a number of years, wouldn't appropriate the funds to be able to do that. So Department of Energy, which had responsible uh, responsibility for the cleanup, they needed to find their own way of financing it. And they did that by you know, leaking out inventory into the market. And so for several years, that was between three and five million pounds per annum, the equivalent of a decent sized mine, for example, the size of the Langer Heinrich mine in Namibia that's been placed onto care and maintenance. Now, for two years in a row now, the House Appropriations Committee under the Trump administration's influence has suspended that barter. Now we've got a group of very powerful people within the US administration who can get together and say, you know what, this DOE barter has been bad news for the uranium sector and it's been bad news for US uranium producers and it produces absolutely no benefit to the utilities. So let's deal with this. And they're the sort of outcomes that I think are quite possible. I think the DOE issues more than likely. And there are some other things that the working group can do to fix the broader health of the US nuclear sector. And we're seeing state by state level subsidies or uh, financial support being given to the nuclear industry in recognition of the fact that they are carbon free electricity producers and they produce a baseload resilience for the grid that you don't get from heavily subsidised power sources such as intermittent renewables. Now we've got all of the right people sitting around the table to be able to put that case at a federal level to support nuclear power. And I think that would be a huge catalyst. One of the reasons why it's so important is not only that the US nuclear fleet represents such a big part of uranium demand, but they have been something of the poster child, a negative poster child for depressed sentiment in the nuclear industry, which has, of course, been reflected in depressed uranium prices. So it wasn't that long ago that they were the gold standard with France for the production of nuclear energy. And now a large number of players in the nuclear sector over the last few years have been going, gee, look at the US, here's the engine of our industry that's just looking so dilapidated and so sick. And the beaten down attitudes of all of the US players has naturally had an influence and effect on the rest of the industry globally. And so we've had this gap because China's now taking the mantle from the US and France, but it's still taking a little bit of time and they're quite insular. So they're, they're not in the same position to influence other industry players. So anything that can return the health and confidence and invigorate, as President Trump puts it, the US nuclear industry is very positive for the broader industry and therefore the uranium sector. It sounds like good news to Bannerman, right? Oh, most definitely, Marcella. Apart from Bannerman receiving the same lift that all non-US producers will receive with increasing the health of the uranium sector and so on, I think African projects are in a particularly good space now. And obviously Bannerman being so advanced and so large is one of the key contenders for that benefit. The reason why African projects, particularly from Namibia, stand to have a very nice day in the sun now is this working group, they're going to be looking at issues around diversity of supply. They're going to be looking in a holistic way, not only how the US obtains its diversity of supply, but how other competitors obtain their diversity of supply. What exactly is China doing? What exactly is Russia doing? How is the Middle East planning on getting their uranium, given the, all 
the intensity of discussions with Saudi Arabia, both from the US and Russia at the moment. This holistic view is going to start to introduce a couple of very, very important points. The first one is China has an appetite that will require it to acquire pretty much every legitimate uranium project it can, and legitimate in the sense of relatively low risk, relatively advanced or fully advanced, and in jurisdictions where they can actually buy into the project for, for a start, and secondly, hope to produce and export the uranium. Now, when that penny drops with the US, there's a new light that's going to be shone on African projects in particular. The administration will start looking at African projects in a different light, in a more competitive light. And the focus won't be entirely, is this uranium we need for the US? The focus will start to be, is this uranium that we want to see going to China, Russia, uh, Middle East, South Korea, France, etc., etc. Now, the second thing about it is Namibia in particular is quite unique in the world of substantial uranium producers because it's friends with the US, it's friends with France, it's friends with India, it's friends with Russia, and it's friends with China. So any geopolitical agitation that gets generated either by the Section 232 process that we've seen already or by some of the discussions or outcomes from the working group will also favour Namibian uranium production because Namibia is able to face all of these different directions. It's not just locked into being aligned with Russia. Um, the production that isn't already owned by China in Namibia isn't locked into look at China. Namibia's got a long history of selling uranium to the US. It's got a long history of selling uranium to France. Iran is invested in Namibia. Um, Indian firms are invested in Namibia, although they're not invested in the uranium sector yet. So all of those factors mean that there will be multi-sovereign attention paid to Namibia as a source of uncompromised uranium availability. And of course, for Bannerman, that's fantastic news because we're the most advanced of any of the projects in Namibia that haven't already gone into production. And we're the largest of those projects that haven't gone into production. 270 million pounds, where it's enormous. Tango's enormous. We did a DFS back in 2012. We've run a demonstration plant for three years. Uh, we've got very, very high quality data. And the company itself is very well positioned um, in the broader nuclear sector. So not only from a general sector point of view, but from a specific access to African uranium perspective, I think it's great news for Bannerman. What do you expect to happen? Utilities will go back to the market and buy uranium. Will they find that cheap uranium they have been accustomed to? Or do you think prices will go up substantially from here? And by the way, do you still have the 40 dollar a pound price target for uranium at the end of this year? Yeah, I, I still see uranium in the range of 35 to 40. Anything beyond that is a happy outcome. Anything below that, I think, will require some deep retrospective analysis of what's happening in the industry. So I feel quite confident about $35 to $40 at the end of the year. Um, so if you look at what can now happen, first of all, we have producer buying, predominantly from Cameco, and I estimate they've still got another uh, 10 million pounds to buy this calendar year. And I think if they see prices below that 
range that I see them coming into, they might start buying some of next year's deliveries as well. So they could enter the market for 10, 12, 14, 15 million pounds if they like the price that they're getting. Um, But what you might also see is utilities start to top up their inventory. Um, Utilities, as everyone knows who follows the sector, have felt quite engorged with inventory since Fukushima. Um, Utilities have been very good at honouring their long-term contracts that were written previous to Fukushima's events. And so for a long time, they believed that they had more inventory than they needed. Now, there's an interesting thing that happens when you have a shortage, as we do on an annualised basis at the moment, and the perception that prices are increasing. And that interesting thing is that people's perception of the right amount of inventory starts to change. So if you have the view, as one of the industry consultants has been quite fond of putting out there, that prices are going to flatline for the next three to five years, well, almost any amount of inventory is excess because you don't really need to hold it. It's not a risk mitigator if you don't think there's a risk that needs to be mitigated because prices are flatlining. And so you might be holding two years, which is about the average that US utilities are holding. And you might say, well, that's two years of wasted balance sheet. I only need one year and therefore I'm feeling engorged with inventory. The moment you start to question that uh, view of future uranium prices and you think, well, they could easily double and let's just treat this 35 to $40 as a scenario that we need to risk manage. All of a sudden, two years looks pretty appropriate and maybe some of those utilities will start topping up. Um, when you look at the publicly available figures, the US utilities uh, reduced their inventory by 11 million pounds last year. And I would see that as a target range for what they might reacquire over the next six months if they believe that prices are going up, if they can be convinced that we are now into a different dynamic in the commodity cycle. So you've got the producer buyers, you've potentially got utility buyers. Um, There will be other utilities outside the US who will see this as a short window of opportunity before the commodity moves very firmly into an upswing. Um, There's a very good chance that you will see traders re-enter the market to create new carry trade positions. And uh, we've seen very little of the carry trade in the last six months. So this is now a chance for utilities to look to improve their three to five, well, probably two to three year deliveries through the carry trade. That'll put immediate pressure on the spot market. And I expect with such a clear and positive outcome from Section 232, I expect to see financial players re-enter the market. We've still got capacity inside Yellow Cake's option with Kazakhstan, with the Kazatomprom deal. Um, UPC will, I think, get a good lift out of these events and increasing uranium price, which will interest their um, further capitalisation. And as we know, there's a number of other players at a smaller scale who are in the wings. And this is exactly the sort of result that will enable them to step forward, raise their money and get on with acquiring yellow cake, acquiring U308. So that's on the demand side. And on the supply side, well, nothing's really changed. There's nothing that's going to suggest that we see more supply availability on the spot price, on the spot market, except rising prices. So we've got a number of demand factors that are lining up to acquire uranium sub $30 and beyond with no real change in the supply that's willing to come out. If someone was willing to sell at $25 last week, there's not going to be more material available to sell at $25 now that there's a positive market event. 
that's out there. Perfect. Listen, Brandon, once again, many thanks for coming to this program and sharing your insights with us. It's always a pleasure to talk to you and um, I hope you enjoy the rest of your holiday. Oh, yeah. If it continues the way that it started, uh, we'll have a fantastic time. And there's only one week of holiday left before I start working again. But as you can imagine, Marcelo, working in Vintook feels like a holiday anyway. So I don't have much to complain about right now. (laughs) Great. Thank you, Brandon. Thanks, Marcelo. If you like this podcast, feel free to forward it to your friends and colleagues. We appreciate your time, support and your feedback. You can follow Marcelo Lopez on Twitter at MALopez1975. The information presented here is not investment advice and should not be taken as such. You should do your own due diligence and consult with your financial advisor before doing anything suggested or mentioned in this podcast. L2 Capital and its partners will not be liable for any losses that occur in doing whatever is discussed in this podcast.